We are uh, still in Matthew chapter 18. I uh, mentioned last week that there was more to Jesus talking about the little ones uh, here in the beginning of this chapter. And uh, the part of this that we're going to be looking at today, starting in verse 5 and going through to verse 9, is probably one of the most important aspects of this passage. Um, the, there's, there's stuff in here that we've actually talked about in First um, Corinthians and in the book of Romans. Uh, though the, Jesus taught it first, chronologically, Romans and Corinthians were written before Matthew was. So, anyways... Um, the the idea here is very 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 important for us as we think about the christian life we think about life in general and and how we deal with temptation and and what temptation means as we struggle through um so i'm just going to stop and have you all stand and We'll read our passage for today, and then I'll get on with my notes that make a little bit more sense to me. I must have been asleep while I was writing the first part. It's Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray. Father, as we... Look at your word again this morning. I pray that you would help us to understand, help us to see the truth in this passage, help us to apply it to the way that we live our lives. And Father, most of all, help it to grow us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray this for his name and his glory. Amen. Please have a seat. So, a senior moment. I don't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, because that happens a lot more. Um, in verse 5, where Jesus says, one such child, he's not necessarily talking about the child that he has sitting in his lap. Okay? Just to, to set the stage, the disciples, they're in Capernaum, they're in the house, they come to Jesus, they ask the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in response, Jesus sits down, he calls a child over to sit in his lap, and he says that you have to become like a child. You have to change and become like a child. In other words, you have to put aside that guile, that cynicism, that jaded look at the world, and trust God fully for your salvation. And then he says that we need to humble ourselves, and that's what makes one great in the kingdom of heaven, is that humility, knowing that I'm not all that. There is nothing that I could do, there is nothing that I have ever done that obligates God to do anything for me, period. My prayers don't obligate God. 
nothing that I can do, no matter how righteous, I could go out and jump in front of a bullet for somebody. That does not obligate God. It does not write a check that God has to cash where he's required to do something for me. So we need to approach life with that humility like a child. A child who comes to their parents knows that they don't know everything until they turn into teenagers and then all bets are off. Okay? That's why he used a child and not a teenager. (laughs) But here in verse 5 where he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, he's not talking necessarily about the child sitting on his lap. He's talking about the one who has become like the child, the believer. Um, We need to be one of his little children. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now that doesn't mean, I love the English language, I really do. But we were talking last night about, uh, over at a friend's house, we were talking about languages and, and the different types of languages. Of course, he was raised Roman Catholic, so he thought that that meant that I had to know Latin because um, I'm a preacher. I don't know Latin at all. So I know a little bit of Greek. I know a little bit of Hebrew, but I don't know any Latin. And uh, he was surprised when I told him that, that the English language wasn't necessarily based on any particular. It's not Latin-based purely. We, we have some words that are Latin-based, and it's not Germanic-based purely, though we have some words that we've kidnapped from Germany. Um, but English is that language that does that. We go to other languages, we find words that we like, we kidnap them, and we beat them up. That's how English works. And this is one of those cases where the words that we have here, just in modern English, are hard for us to understand. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does that mean? On the one hand, if we're talking about receiving somebody, right? Is that like adoption? Is that like welcoming them into your house? Is that like accepting them as a friend? What does it mean? And then on the other hand, thank you, not just the English language, but churchianity, right? Where we have church speak. We have words that we use. And we talk to people and we tell them, you need to receive Christ. It's the same word. Whoever receives one in my name receives me. So does that mean... Then, as long as somebody believes in a disciple of Jesus, that they've now accepted Christ for salvation? No. Thank you, English language. Okay? So, let's think about this for a second here. The way Jesus is putting it, and how he explains it, and how he couches this in the context of what we have here, he is talking about somebody who accepts that disciple into their home, into their life with an open handshake, somebody who doesn't push you away, somebody who's accepting. That doesn't save them. This isn't a salvific sense, but this is a sense of showing hospitality. And what does it mean to receive Jesus? It's the same salvific pertaining to salvation. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna print a thesaurus for you guys for every, <laughs> every sermon. Okay? 
So Jesus isn't talking about salvation. He's not saying that as long as a person accepts somebody in the name of Christ, then they've accepted Christ. What he's saying is more of an idea of hospitality. It's more of an idea of being welcoming, right? When he sent the disciples out, he said, if you go to a house and they don't receive you, what are you supposed to do, right? You knock the dust off your feet and you go to the next house, right? Because they didn't receive you. So that's the idea here that he's talking about, is that idea of showing hospitality. It's it's like if a person invites me in to share lunch with them, then it's like if they were having lunch with Jesus. At least I'd hope that me being present in the house would be a little bit like them having lunch with Jesus, right? Because we're supposed to be more Christ-like. We're supposed to be humble like the little child. We're supposed to have that humility and that that childlike faith. We're supposed to reflect Jesus in all we do. So if I go into somebody's house, then there should be a little bit of Jesus in there with me, right? So that's what Jesus is talking about. Then things get a little bit more complex. Because in verse 6, we have the, the, the holy however, or as uh, one preacher called it, the apostolic but. Okay? Verse 6, the very first word, but. But represents a contrast. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I got to tell you, as a person who can't swim, that's kind of a scary image. Okay, it's not fair to say I can't swim. If I'm in a small body of water, not too far from shore, I'll probably survive. Maybe. (laughs) My last summer snorkeling event put that to question. Um, But to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the deepest part of the sea, that's a, that's a frightening image, right? That's a, that's a very bad thing that could happen. And Jesus said, it'd be better for that to happen than what's going to happen to the person who causes one of his little children, one of his believers, one of his followers to sin. So how do we handle this? How do we, how do we understand this? There are, there are some really, really, really bad interpretations of this verse. Jesus is talking about how bad the consequences are for somebody who causes one of his followers to sin. So let's set up some hypothetical situations that we can ask questions about and see if we can answer them from Scripture. Okay? So first hypothetical situation, you have a young man or a young woman who's a relatively new believer, somebody who's still childlike in their faith, right? that probably hasn't gotten too jaded because they've had doors slammed in their faith and and they've spent too much time uh, listening to old people in the church telling them how things aren't going to work, right? So you have this young person in the faith and they encounter someone of the opposite gender who is not a believer. Let's say maybe they're even an outspoken pagan, right? And they, they're, they're co-workers, they're friends, whatever. And they decide to go out to dinner. Now, maybe the, the young believer is thinking this is an opportunity. I can share the gospel. I can maybe have an impact and change this person's life. So far, so good, right? So they go out to dinner, and one thing leads to another. 
And the unbeliever tempts the believer to cross a boundary and to go someplace that they shouldn't go. And the believer commits a sin. Okay? Jesus says it would be better for the unbeliever to have a great millstone tied around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Does that mean that the unbeliever, the one who tempted the believer, has no help of salvation? No. Good. All righty. Does that mean that even if she were then later saved, that she would still have to face some kind of punishment when she stands before Jesus? No. No. Because when Jesus forgives you, he forgives you. Okay? So let me, let me turn the question a little bit. All right? Let's take the unbeliever out. Let's say it's two young believers who do the same. They go out to dinner. They have a nice time with each other. One thing leads to another, and one tempts the other to sin. They cross that line. Boom. It's happened. Okay? So is the one who tempted the weaker believer now in peril of losing salvation? No. Okay. Are they susceptible to punishment when they stand before Jesus? A lot less quick on the head shakes this time around. (laughs) The answer is still no. The answer is still no. Let me, let me address, look at this step by step. We'll first talk about the, the, the salvation possibility for both believers. Okay. There is only one place in scripture where there is a sin that is listed that is unforgivable, right? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, there is only one unforgivable sin and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Period. That's it. Okay. This isn't that. This is tempting another person to sin. Easy. If it were a believer who tempted another to sin, that would in itself be a sin, right? Okay. Now, John chapter 10, and I'm going to read this to you guys. This is a very pertinent verse in relation to this idea. John 10, starting in verse 27. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop back to uh, verse 22. Uh, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. i got to stop here for just a second. They wouldn't have listened even if he did. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do, I do in my father's, uh, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now pay very close attention to verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Okay? We're good with that verse. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what kind of life does Jesus give to his sheep? It's eternal, right? When does eternity end? It doesn't. Okay? And when will his sheep perish? Never. Okay? And no one includes who? <laughs> Everybody. It's it's universal negative. Nobody is able to. Nobody. So, that puts that idea to rest. Now, Jesus gives eternal life to his followers. They won't perish. No one can snatch them out of their hand. The unbeliever has not committed the unforgivable sin. Therefore, their salvation is not a question. That's easy. Look at the rest of the passage back here in Matthew to see if we can get an idea then of what Jesus is talking about. Because he goes on and he says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. And then he goes on talking about cutting your hand and your foot off and plucking your eye out and all kinds of stuff. We'll get there in just a second. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. Now, am I the only person in here that reads that and kind of goes, wait a minute, Jesus said that we need to have temptations? That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And once again, I'm going to point at the English language. All right. There's a different sense of the word necessary. Necessary is not necessarily something that we need, but it is something that must happen. It happens out of necessity. So when Jesus says that it's necessary that temptations come, he's talking about living in a fallen world, a world that is full of sin, a world that is broken, Temptations are going to happen. There's no way around them. But then he pronounces misery and grief, that's the word woe, on the agent of that temptation. Let's think about normal life. Whether a person is saved or not, sin leaves a mark when it happens. For the vast majority of people, now there are people with mental conditions like sociopaths and psychopaths and paranoid schizophrenics and manic depressives and, and there are psychological conditions that suppress a person's conscience. I'm not talking about those people. That is medical issues. I am talking about normal rank and file human beings. Right? When a person sins, no matter how big, no matter how small, there is a poke in their conscience. In the United States, we know certain things are right, we know certain things are wrong. If you go to Africa, they may have different standards. But just about every culture has a standard against murder. Now, it might not be considered murder if it's somebody from the other tribe. It's only murder if it's somebody in your own tribe. And they know that it's wrong. And if you do it, 
that conscience is there to tell you you've done something wrong. The bad part is that conscience is also tainted by our sin nature. Right? The depravity of sin touches every aspect of who we are. Everything. My understanding, my cognitive ability, my ability to think, my ability to make decisions, my willpower, everything about me is touched by sin. That includes my conscience. That means that even though I may have done something that my conscience knows is sin, it might not be as loud of a siren going off in my head as it ought to be. Okay? I promise I will not report anybody to to the police, but raise your hand if you stuck to every speed limit on the road when you drove here this morning. <laughs> How many of you were bothered when you passed that speed limit? Don't even think about it, right? It's just something we do. Just like the child who repeatedly lies to their parents, there comes a point where that lie no longer causes their conscience to scream. Just like the thief who who steals and steals and steals, whether they get away with it or they get caught. The more you do it, the less sensitized to that, that voice in your head you become. Scripture describes that as building a callus over our conscience, right? The the conscience gets pricked when we violate it. Any diabetics in here? I know there's at least two of you. And a third who doesn't take any of his medication or anything. Sorry. How do diabetics check their uh, blood sugar? Not, not as often as they're supposed to, right? Okay? But you, you prick your finger, right? What happens to your finger after you prick it with that needle a hundred times? You don't feel it anymore. Yeah. Okay? I, I have had a couple of, because I am genetically doomed to diabetes. It's going to happen. Thank you. Okay? It's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. The doctor keeps asking me, so how's your blood sugars been? Uh, just don't ask. Right? On those weird occasions where I know my sugar has been out of whack, I have, I've, I've allowed, I've never asked for it, but I have allowed Steph to check my blood sugar. That little needle hurts. It hurts bad. And I can sit here and watch her four, six, eight times a day. Hmm, click. I wince every time I hear it go off. But see, that's the difference between a conscience that is pricked infrequently and a conscience that is frequently punctured by sin. The more we do it, the more likely we are to just deaden that pain and not pay attention to it. We justify our actions. We tell ourselves that, well, that speed limit is really, it's, it's not a safety thing. It's not, it's not a hard and fast law. It was originally created just for the government to be able to make revenue. 
or to help with gas prices or to whatever, right? It's not that big a deal. Everybody's driving too fast. So I've suppressed that conscience, right? Right up until the cop drives past. <laughs> then we'll rip that callus off real quick, right? So we have this sin nature that has broken our conscience. Maybe some of the stuff that we do that is sin, our conscience doesn't even register. It might be because we did it as a kid. Okay? I know that gluttony, lack of self-control, is a sin. I do. I know you can't tell that by looking at me. Because I will sit and eat until I feel that I can't eat anymore, which is normally about 15 minutes after I should have stopped eating. But see, I've done that my entire life. I've never made a plate of pasta I didn't like. Or two. Or three. Yeah. So, sometimes our conscience isn't bothered when it should be. Sometimes our conscience is bothered, but we suppress it and we push it aside. Now, if you're talking about a believer, right? Then we start having those feelings of guilt that join in with our conscience. And I'll tell you, one of the best stories I ever heard from my, my, my all-time favorite preacher and, and spiritual mentor, whether he knew it or not, Dr. R.C. Sproul, I absolutely love this story. He was talking about the problem of guilt. And he was counseling this woman. She came into his office and she said that she had committed XYZ sin, whatever it was. And she was just so overwrought with guilt and, and she knew she needed to repent. And so she would pray and she would repent, but she kept being bothered by that guilt. And she would go back and she would pray and she would repent and she would pray and she'd repent and she'd pray and she'd repent. And she never committed the sin again. But she could not get past the feeling of guilt. So she asked Dr. Sproul, what do I need to do? And he said, well, I see the problem. You need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. And she throws her hands in the air and she says, have you not been listening to me? I've been doing that. It's not working. He says, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. You don't need to pray and ask God to forgive you for that sin. That's already done. You need to pray and ask him to forgive you for not believing him. Oh, see, sometimes our conscience is out of whack because we don't believe that God's forgiven us. We don't see how he could forgive us. Or we see things that happen in our life and we ascribe them to God. Obviously, he's punishing me for something. No, the punishment's already been taken for your sin. Now, maybe there's a consequence. That's not a punishment. If I drive too fast and a cop pulls me over and I get a speeding ticket, that is not a punishment from God. That is a consequence for my sin. See, there's a difference. So we have this gauge, and, and this is what, now in the life of a believer, we have that guilt we have to deal with. In the life of unbelievers, this is where self-medication happens. Right? Because they know something has happened that's not supposed to happen. 
And they don't know how to get rid of that feeling of guilt. So they may turn to drugs. They may turn to alcohol. They may turn to, <laughs> they may turn to gambling. They may turn to illicit relationships. They may turn to binge watching TV shows. Any one of those things can be self-medication. I know people who are addicted to amusement parks. They have to have the adrenaline rush of going to an amusement park. It helps deaden the pain of other stuff that they're dealing with. Okay? There are people who are addicted to video games because it pushes aside all the thoughts of the things that are going on in their life. That's self-medication. And of course, that addiction, that self-medication causes a nagging itch because, number one, it doesn't answer the problem. And number two, it causes more sin. Because if you're addicted to alcohol and you live your life in a drunken stupor, then that's a sin, right? So there's another sin piled on top of whatever sin it was you were trying to medicate. If you're addicted to gambling, you lose all your money, you can't pay your debts, you can't support your family, that's another sin on top of whatever sin it was you were trying to medicate, right? That's what happens. And so we deal with this deeper desperation for relief. What does this have to do with Jesus in Matthew chapter 18? Woe to the world for temptation to sin. Because when we sin, when we tempt others to sin, we get the grief. Now let me go back to the first example of the, the, the unbeliever who tempts the believer to sin. Right? Out of what? Where did that desire to tempt somebody else to sin come from? Sometimes it's to bring other people down so you don't feel so bad about yourself. Sometimes it's to provide that deadening, right? To cover up the pain of your own sin. Sometimes it's, it, who knows? But deep down, there is that grief, there is that sadness, there is that strife. And for the believer who causes another person to sin, there is unbelievable guilt. The closer you are to Christ, the more guilt you're going to feel if you tempt someone to sin. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, woe to those who cause one of these little ones to... Because I'll tell you what, I have dealt with that guilt of being the person who's caused someone to go down the wrong path for whatever reason, right? And it doesn't have to be a big sin that I tempt them to, to commit. It could be a small one, right? I've dealt with that guilt. Given the choice, I'd rather have a millstone tied about my neck. Because if I was not still alive and kicking, I wouldn't be reminded of that guilt all the time. By myself. So that's what Jesus means. Now he gives us this, this great figurative, by the way, it is figurative example. There's a group of, uh, uh, of monks, a, a order of monks, 
in uh, Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, that area down there in the southwest. They're called Los Penitentes. They're a group of monks uh, that, that actually practiced the act of self-flagellation, uh, basically repeating the, um, the flogging that Jesus received before his death. But they went so far as to understand this passage. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So if one of them had a problem taking things that was not theirs, they would voluntarily have their hand cut off. If they had a problem with looking after and lusting after somebody, they would voluntarily pluck their eyeball out. And so you have a group of monks walking around with, you know, half of them with one hand, half of them without a foot, some of them without an eyeball. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's been talking about the people who bring temptations into life. He's talking about those situations that cause us to sin. Right? So, let me let me put it into today's vernacular. If it's a magazine subscription that tempts you to sin, cut it off. Cancel the magazine. Don't buy it at the newsstand. If it's a newspaper subscription, cut it off. If it's your internet access, cut it off. Great example of this, the movie Fireproof. If you've ever seen the movie Fireproof of Kirk Cameron, the best scene in the entire movie because he's struggling with internet pornography, right? And that's caused part of the, the problem in his marriage. And finally, he, he realizes it and God gets a hold of him. So he takes the computer outside and he sets it up and he takes the baseball bat to it. That's what Jesus is talking about. Whatever causes you to sin, it's better to get rid of it. If it's a person that you hang out with, Look, you are not supposed to be the missionary to everybody. There are some people who are toxic to you. Don't think that you have to go through being led into temptation every time you're with that person because you need to share Jesus with them. You ever know anybody that does that? Don't do that. The book of Proverbs says that that's very similar to casting your treasure before a pig. What do pigs know of treasures? Nothing. You know what a pig will do? If you throw a string of pearls in front of the pig, they'll eat it because they eat everything. So don't do that. If it's a person who's toxic in your life, cut them off. If it's a kind of music that you listen to, Turn it off. Whatever it happens to be that causes you to be tempted to sin, get rid of it. It's better to go without. That's Jesus' example. It's better to go without that hand if that's what causes you to sin. i got to tell you, my hand doesn't cause me to sin. There is not a thief out there in the world that is tempted to sin because they have hands. I don't know what my foot could do to tempt me to sin. I I still haven't figured that one out. And my eyeball doesn't tempt me to sin. So legitimately, if I were going to take this to the extreme like the, the, the monks, the part that tempts me to sin, I would have to lobotomize myself. 
Because the part that tempts me to sin is my brain. I'm not signing up for a lobotomy. I turned down the opportunity to become an officer in the United States Air Force. I don't need a lobotomy. Okay? And even that wouldn't help. Because it's my nature that causes me to sin. And so, no matter how much it's going to hurt, no matter how painful it could be, whatever it is that causes you to sin, you need to get rid of it. It's that simple. If only it was that simple. How easy is it to get rid of a friend that you've had for years? if they're the one who causes you to sin? How easy is it to give up those things that you enjoy if that's what causes you to sin? Because sometimes that's what it is, right? I had to quit going to Olive Garden. It hasn't helped. (laughs) I've discovered I also like Mexican food and American food and Greek food And Korean food. The fact of the matter is, it's going to hurt to get rid of those things that cause us to sin. So if I look at the overall picture of what Jesus is talking about here, when we're tempted to sin, He says, Woe to the world. Whoever causes somebody to sin, it would be better for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea. For a believer, that's that weight of guilt that we deal with. And you know, if I'm, if I'm a person in your life that causes you to sin, get rid of me. Tell me that. As painful as it might be. Because that's what it takes. That's what Jesus says. Very, very, very important lesson. It's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the fire. To the person who is a believer who tempts somebody to sin, when they stand before Jesus, I believe that there are two judgments that are going to happen. The first is going to be the separation of the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. Scripture says very clearly that there is is that time when the believers are given admittance and the unbelievers are sent to hell. But there's also that time when all of our works are going to be judged. Before the great white throne. And the good stuff is going to be judged like gold, silver, and precious gems. It's going to go through a fire. It's going to be purified. And all of the bad stuff, all of the idle words, all of those times where we've tempted people to sin is going to go through like wood, hay, and stubble. If you've ever burned wood, hay, and stubble, 
It doesn't get purified. It burns up. It gets consumed. So if you have a lot of that on your account, what are you going to be left with when your deeds are judged? A pile of ash. Your clothes are going to smell like smoke. But where are you going to be? You're still going to be standing in the presence of Jesus. You're still going to be standing in the presence of Jesus.